Welcome back to the program. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain, and I'm joined today at the Conference of the American Historical Association in Washington, D.C. by David Messinger, a professor of history at the University of South Alabama. We are here to talk about the Allied effort to repatriate Nazis from Spain to Germany after the Second World War, a topic that is the subject of his recent book, Hunting Nazis in Franco-Spain. So David, welcome to the program. Thanks, glad to be here. To start out, I was wondering if you could just give us a brief summary of Spain's status during uh, the Second World War. We know that it was officially a neutral country, but to what extent was that actually true? Sure. Uh, well, of course, the government of Francisco Franco had come to power in the Spanish Civil War with the assistance of fascist Italy that sent almost 100,000 troops to fight in the Civil War and with the assistance of Nazi Germany. Uh, which provided troops and equipment uh, to Franco's side. And so the Franco regime was very disposed to the Axis and indeed considered joining the Second World War. Ultimately, they did not join the war because of the devastation that occurred in the Civil War, did not have a, a productive or a military that could fight in World War II, uh, and also because Germany would not guarantee benefits that Franco wanted, namely the taking over of French colonies in North Africa. And so as a result, Franco was officially neutral and then from 1940 through 1943, non-belligerent and then back to neutral. Non-belligerent was a, a status that didn't really exist legally, but it is what Italy had declared itself after the start of the war, but before they themselves joined the war on Germany's side. And so it was thought to be a precursor to joining the war, although that never happened in the Spanish case. Regardless of the legal status, though, while neutral in the sense that it, Spain traded both with the Allies and the Axis, traded, traded um, minerals and other equipment that would be useful for the war efforts of both sides, uh, they very clearly favored the Axis side in a number of ways, um, in terms of economic agreements, in terms of access, German submarines were able to be refueled at Spanish ports uh, when they were fighting in the Atlantic Ocean. So things like that that clearly moved beyond sort of our traditional idea of neutrality as to not taking sides. Um, and really only in the last year, year and a half of the war did the Franco regime kind of alter that task once they realized the Allies were going to win and started giving extra benefits to the Allies. So my understanding uh, from your book is that there were quite a few German agents in Spain as well. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how these uh, agents were organized and what kind of duties they performed. So because Spain was uh, you know, very friendly toward Nazi Germany, it was easy to get Germans into Spain. Its geographic position was really important in the Second World War. It stands you know, with the Atlantic coastline, it stands with um, the Mediterranean coastline, the access to the Mediterranean from the Atlantic at the Straits of Gibraltar. So there's many aspects that made it appealing for both allies and access to send agents there so they could track the shipping of one another, they could see what was going on, as well as whether Spain was actually neutral or not, you know, which would have been a question that concerned both sides. Um, so lots of agents were sent. In the German case, they sent military intelligence, known as the Abwehr. That would be either army intelligence or more often naval intelligence, whose purpose was to find out what allied shipping was going through the Mediterranean, was in the Atlantic, 
and um, how could the U-boats target that Allied shipping, as well as what Allied military shipping might be in the area, um, moving troops or, or, or things of that nature. You had the SD, which was the Nazi Party's own intelligence organization, the Thicker Den Heist, and it was responsible for basically ideological intelligence, so trying to influence the Spanish government to be pro-Axis, to be pro-fascist, monitoring the German colony uh, in the area, so not as much of a military kind of intelligence group, but more political, we might say more political intelligence, concerned with Jews who were escaping from German-occupied Europe into Spain in the hopes they could find some refuge. Um, so there was interest in tracking that kind of movement, so they were uh, active. You then had also Gestapo agents, which we do not really think of as intelligence agents because the Gestapo in a way is a kind of secret police organization inside of Germany. But the Gestapo did have extensive relations outside of uh, Germany and their concern was policing the German colony and making sure that any German organizations that may have existed amongst Germans living in Spain were Nazi organizations and were in adherence with that. So they're very active. Uh, and so you have all of these groups. So it's kind of organized, but it's also very disorganized because you have these groups who may not always be aware of each other or competing against each other kind of for certain kinds of intelligence. Certainly the SD resented the Abwehr. Uh, the Abwehr coming out of the military didn't consider themselves to be a Nazified intelligence agency. They were doing more traditional military intelligence. The SD saw themselves as more political, more Nazi. So there's competition uh, with those groups. But the result is there's a lot of German agents <laughs> right. uh, in Spain. So probably several hundred. Uh, yes, it's almost impossible to come up with an exact number because you also have numerous consulates, which had many agents undercover, numerous German businesses doing extensive business, uh, economic business with Spain during the war, not just for war materials, but in all kinds of industries. Many of those German companies took in people who were agents. Uh, under cover of being an employee of that company. Um, but you also had a ton of work. Part of the intelligence work was securing uh, economic minerals that could be used in the production of weapons or things. That was not something just to be left to business on its own. They, the government wanted to know what they were getting uh, right. and that that trade flowed. So they were doing both jobs, really, you know, uh, and, and undercover. So probably. I would guess six to seven hundred that we would count as agents. On top of that, you'd have many we'd consider sub-agents, which may be Spaniards who are helping the Nazis. So in, in the northwest of Spain, fishermen who were out fishing and were paid by the Germans to report on what Allied ships they may have seen while they're out uh, fishing. But many would go fishing for three, four days, go quite a ways into the ocean. Mm -hmm. What did they see when they were out there? You know, the Germans would pay them. We wouldn't really consider that a German agent, but they're, they're sub-agents. Right. People in the German colony who maybe just were business people, you know, being visited by a Nazi party official or a Gestapo agent just to ask what they may have seen in their, in, in their business dealings. Border guards, Spanish border guards, who were paid off by the Germans to tell them if any down, allied airmen who'd maybe been shot down over France had escaped over the Pyrenees into Spain. Um, so it's quite extensive when you add that kind of level of, of work as well. 
So it sounds like a really extensive operation that the Germans were running in Spain and a lot of times they were blurring the lines between who is an agent, who is a businessman, a diplomat, and so forth. Could you give us an example um, of one of these spies in particular, uh, just so that we could have a better feel? Sure. So uh, I, th I think one example I give, there's, there's two types of these people. The Germans really wanted to recruit people who understood Spain. Uh, and this did not start with World War II, but it went back to the Spanish Civil War because the Germans sent the Condor Legion, which was a division of the Luftwaffe that took part in the bombings alongside Franco's troops. About 5,000 people at any one time uh, served uh, in the Condor Legion. Mm -hmm. And about 19,000 people served in the Condor Legion over the course of the Spanish Civil War that the Germans were there. Even when they were looking to people to recruit to the Condor Legion, at that time, they looked to Germans who knew Spain. So people who'd already been there for business, who had some ties to Spain, were heavily recruited in the Condor Legion. And this is the same group that's heavily recruited to be agents. And so one example of that um, I can give you is a man by the name of Joseph Bugen, who first came to Spain in 1929 um, to work in business and basically serve as a as a businessman representing German commercial firms in northern Spain around the city of Bilbao. He was part of the Condor Legion and then remained in Bilbao after the Spanish Civil War and eventually gets um, connected uh, to the SD and becomes an agent working with the, the Nazis. He was a member of the Nazi party dating from 1935 and he worked as a businessman, keeping that cover as a businessman throughout the war, working for the SD. And so you have that kind of agent in mm -hmm. the city of Bilbao. Another kind of agent was someone sent there because of the war. So you have a massive expansion of the German colony. Before World War II, maybe 7,500 Germans lived and worked in Spain. And by 1943, it's about 20,000 Germans that are living and working in Spain. So most of them have come because of the war and because of some connection to the German government. And agents were in this group as well. So then you have someone like uh, Walter Eugene Mosig, who was uh, in the SD as well. He had been uh, in Berlin and previously in Argentina for the SD, been a businessman in Argentina, then was recruited and joined the police, was in the Gestapo for a while in Berlin and then gets sent to Spain in 1943. And his mission in Spain is money laundering. His job is to uh, set up organizations and relationships with German companies, with Spanish companies, to move money out of Germany that the, the Nazi party could use potentially um, for its operations. And then once mid-1944 came and the Germans kind of saw they were going to lose the war, maybe that could revive the Nazi party down the road, you know, if, if in fact they were removed from Germany. And so he had uh, extensive networks established to move money around Spain and eventually also move money from Spain to Latin America mm -hmm. because of his connections with Argentina. Um, so he only comes into Spain as an agent, sent there to be an agent, and then serves and then ends up at the end of World War II. He's still in Spain, so he doesn't go back to Germany. And, and so you end up with both kinds of groups of people um, who show up there at different points in time. So we're going to take a short break now and when we'll come back we'll talk about the Allied effort to try and get these people um, out of Spain as the war was ending.
So now that we have a bit of an idea about the Nazi uh, intelligence apparatus in Spain during the Second World War, um, I want to talk about the Allied effort to get uh, these agents out of Spain after the war. And, and this was part of, my understanding anyway, this was part of the Allied denazification program more generally. So I was wondering, Dave, if you could tell us a little bit about what the goals of that program were inside of Germany and how in particular the Allies approached um, trying to denazify this Nazi intelligence apparatus. When the Allies occupied Germany in May of 1945, they agree, that's France, Britain, United States, Soviet Union, agree on three goals, uh, denazification, demilitarization, democratization. Now they end up with four zones of Germany, they each do their own policies in their own zones, they each have very different definitions of what those things meant. So to the Soviets who were communists, the democratization meant communization, which of course it didn't to the Americans. The same policy in denazification. Uh, the United States initially had over four million people they wanted to investigate, soon realized that was impractical, and then worked out a sort of system of review panels, and only very few people went to trial. Whereas in the Soviet zone, there were over 10,000 trials in the first few years after the war because the Soviets insisted that people go to trial, who, especially people who committed war crimes. And so denazification kind of, you can break into two parts. One is a focus on war criminals, so people who are involved in the Holocaust or other crimes against humanity where civilians were slaughtered during World War II. And then the second would be the more broader denazification to try and teach that there has to be a new path for Germany. And so denazification, we often think of as trials, and it certainly was, and we often think it was a failure, and it certainly was in the sense that ultimately very few people went on trial and, and were held responsible for crimes they'd committed. Um, but denazification was also changing the education system so it was more democratic, mm -hmm. making sure there's no Nazis and the head of oh, community organizations. The United States advocated very early municipal elections in Germany. So that's broadly denazification. And most of us would think of it as it's obviously relevant to Germany. But in September of 1945, the Allied Control Commission, which was the group of the four allies that oversaw the occupation, mm -hmm. um, not, not in their, each in their own zone, but sort of came together to discuss common issues, passed a resolution, September of 1945, that declared anyone associated with the Nazi government or Nazi intelligence agencies in neutral states of Europe had to return to Germany and be part of the denazification progr program as if they'd been found in Germany. So if you were a Gestapo agent inside of Germany in the American zone of occupation, you were subject to automatic arrest for being a member of the Gestapo, and then an investigation would ensue. Ultimately, most of them never went to trial, but still you would be held and there would be some kind of formal hearing mm -hmm. where you would um, maybe receive some kind of penalty for being that active in the Nazi movement. And so this was the realization in September of 1945, this is now you know, six, five, six months after the war ended, that people who worked for the German government when the war ended stayed in those neutral countries. No one was pushing them. It wasn't like the Allies moved in, they could round up these people themselves in, in Germany because they now occupied it. But they had no authority to do that in neutral states like Spain. And mm -hmm. so this um, resolution was to 
to basically compel those people to return, hopefully voluntarily. And if not voluntarily, then you start uh, a program from September of 1945 to pressure the neutral governments to deport those people themselves, mm -hmm. expel them from those countries, would then force them to go back to Germany. Uh, and so this is the repatriation campaign that I focus on. The phrase that the Allies used was obnoxious Germans. And many of these people, of course, if they'd been intelligence agents in Spain, did not commit crimes against humanity, did not murder people, you know, like they did in Eastern Europe or many other parts of occupied Europe. Um, so they weren't war criminals under the definition of war criminal as established by the Allies. Right. But they were people who had fostered the Nazi uh, perspective, fostered, uh, you know, the, the spread of Nazism across Europe in their work as intelligence agents or government officials of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was well known to the Allies that many of the German companies that did business in places like Spain were in fact either outright owned by the German government or extremely under the control of the German government, especially those that dealt with materials that could be used to produce war weapons and, and war materials. And that they were not just businessmen off making the deal. And right. so there was extensive study in the repatriation effort of people affiliated with such companies who had been responsible for that war business between Germany and Spain. And this is not just Spain, it's Sweden, uh, it's Switzerland, it's, it's these other neutral countries, Turkey, these other neutral countries that had done business um, with Nazi Germany. But there was no trust of, of, of these regimes in Spain and Portugal, especially Spain that had done so much business with Nazi Germany and had been so close to Nazi Germany in the war. So the effort was given to the embassies of the United States and the British, uh, and to a lesser extent France, although the United States was the lead country involved in this. So there were agents of the OSS, um, Office of Strategic Services, which was the pre precursor to the CIA, who were sent to Spain to investigate these people. They went through the files of the German embassy, which they took over after mm -hmm. Germany was defeated. They interviewed um, the ambassador, the staff of the embassy, members of the German colony, to find out who was who, who had what jobs, who was an agent, who wasn't an agent, these sorts of things. Their own intelligence collecting during the war about who or who wasn't an agent. And from this, they produced a list, ultimately, of 1,600 people who they, who they wanted deported from Spain. Wow. Um, they realized fairly soon on that there was no way Spain was going to act and deport 1,600 people. Mm -hmm. Many of these agent German agents had friends in Spanish intelligence who were going to protect them, had been very close to Spanish intelligence, who had allowed the Germans to set up these observation stations and radar systems and other things in Spain during the war. The Allies then created different types of lists top priority, sort of four, four priority categories, where four was the lowest and one was the highest. And then would present sort of combination lists every few months to the Spanish. The Allies had actually asked for the deportation of 222 German agents in May of 1944, before the war ended, when they agreed to provide Spain with oil. Spain, in return, had to deport these agents. The Spanish did intern a number of agents from 1944 through 1946 and even into 1947 in camps in Spain where they were deprived of their livelihood and deprived of the ability to interact, although the guarding of these camps was fairly loose. 
So Spain did comply in that sense. Spain was far more reluctant to actually deport people, especially because when you had such a large group of German agents, as I mentioned before, who had ties to Spain, who had been in business in Spain, many of them had married Spanish women, had had children in Spain who were right. Spanish citizens. The Franco regime, I think they sincerely believe this, but they also knew it was a tool to use, said, we're not going to break up families. <laughs> yeah. So that would be an excuse for not deporting someone. Right. Um, so there was a constant back and forth. Preparation of these lists in the Allied embassies and from Allied intelligence. Presentation of the lists to the Spanish Foreign Ministry. Spanish Foreign Ministry taking its time to get back. Well, this is what we did or didn't do. Then the U.S. going back will tell us what you did. Um, what complicated the situation when you get into the, how this actually worked in Spain, sometimes the foreign ministry would go to the interior ministry and say, here's five people we think should be deported. These, these are people the allies really seem to care a lot about. Um, can you round these people up? Where are these people? And then either people in the interior ministry or people influence the interior ministry and say, no, we can't find that person, even though they may very well have known where that person was. So even if the F Spanish foreign ministry decided someone should be rounded up, it doesn't necessarily mean it would happen. In some cases, if people were living in smaller villages, local police wouldn't carry out the order because this person was well known in the community, had been a friend to the Spanish people and the government and the police, etc. So there's all sorts of ways that this fell through the cracks. Yeah. And in some cases, the Spanish foreign ministry wasn't going to even act. So one case is Johannes Bernhard, probably the most important German in Spain. He had been the individual responsible for going. Uh, he was a businessman. He had extensive business dealings in Spain throughout the 30s. He went to Hitler uh, in July of 1936 and asked the Germans to support the rebellion of Francisco Franco that ultimately led to the Spanish Civil War. Wow. He then managed Sofindis, which was a German government company meant to manage all the trade between Spain and Germany. He was the director of that uh, operation. Uh, there was no way he was going to be deported. He had friends at every level of the Spanish government, and the Spanish foreign ministry didn't even ask for him to be deported. He was number one on the Allied list yeah. of deportations. He was interviewed by the Allies willingly because he knew he was never going to be <laughs> deported, so he had no trouble talking to them wow. um, and telling them about how extensive his work had been in Spain. All sorts of reasons why it falls through the cracks. Of the list of 1,600, uh, probably... Five to 600 of those names were actually presented to the Spanish government, and about 265 were actually deported. So a very small percentage. So a very small percentage. Right. What's interesting to me is that there are many ways in which the Spanish are resisting this Allied push to repatriate these Germans, but ultimately there is at least a little bit of cooperation, right? Or, yes. or else no one would be deported. So the Spanish... Why did they cooperate even a little bit with what the Allies wanted? Sure. So what tended to happen when the Spanish would agree to hand over someone or arrest someone would be a, a couple of things. Someone who the Allies were extremely insistent upon. Okay, this person keeps coming up in conversations between the Allied embassies and the, and the foreign ministry. Someone who did not have a Spanish protector. So in the archives, there are many documents where someone from the Ministry of Navy writes, oh, this, this guy is a great guy, he's a friend to us. So if no one comes forward to stand up and defend someone in, in, in that way. So 
then this foreign ministry can say, okay, we didn't hear anything else about this person. Right. Um, so kind of that was the, the combination most of the time, who the allies are insisting upon, someone who doesn't have a protector, or in some cases, if, if they just decided it was case. So Walter Eugene Mosig is a great example. He was an SD agent sent, as I said previously, came to Madrid in 1943 to run money laundering operations. Um, some people believe he was responsible for setting up this restaurant called the Horcher Restaurant in Madrid, still there, <laughs> uh, which was run by Germans and was, the, was a primary place for the Nazi party to hide money and, and run money through. Wow. That he had been uh, had a hand in creating it when it was uh, created in 1943. The American intelligence officials believed, in addition to this, one of his jobs was to uh, police Nazism within the German colony, make sure the German colony was Nazi, and they accused him of even killing anti-Nazi Germans who'd been in Spain. Right? Although I never saw any other evidence other than this American accusation when they interviewed him, mm -hmm. they interviewed him willingly. Uh, he came in willingly, I should, I should say. He had many Spanish protectors. In fact, when the war ended, Spanish intelligence hired him. Oh. And he was an agent for Spanish intelligence. The Americans made it very clear that there was no way a Nazi should have a job in the Spanish government. Right. And he was then removed. He moderately went into hiding, not extensive people knew where he was, but he kind of went into hiding. Uh, after that, the Allies insisted he had many Spanish who spoke up, and eventually the Spanish government decided he was worth giving over because the Allies kept asking for him because they knew that, he, that he'd been interrogated by the Allies. They knew he'd been one of the leaders of the SD in Spain. So even though he had Spanish protectors, that wasn't enough uh, in the end. In, uh, coincidentally, he was sent back to Germany. He was put in an internment camp in Germany, transferred to another internment camp. While being transferred to a third internment camp, he escaped went back to Spain, where he lived for the next three years, and then eventually made his way to Argentina. So yeah, it was a variety of reasons. One mm -hmm. of the things I also, I, I spend a whole chapter in the book writing about, many of these Germans took to their own defense and wrote to the Spanish foreign ministry asking not to be deported, because they knew this was happening. This was common knowledge in the German community that this was going on. Right. They'd already been, many people had already been rounded up and held for six months, three months, two months by the Spanish at the end of the war and into the early part of the post-war mm -hmm. at these camps that I had mentioned before. They knew deportation was, was what the Allies were requesting. So many of these Germans took it upon themselves to write to the Spanish Foreign Ministry asking to be exempted. And they would often write things like, I have a Spanish wife. My children were born in Spain. Some of them would say, I have just as much loyalty to the Franco regime as I do to, the Ger to Germany. In fact, maybe I'm even more Spanish than German now because I've been here for so long. Many of them mentioned their Catholicism. Uh, of course, Germany has a Catholic, uh, a significant Catholic population, but not the majority. Right. Spain is overwhelmingly majority Catholic at this time at least, and Catholicism was an important part of the Franco regime. Uh, and, and, and part of Spanish nationalism in the, in the Franco era. And so many people wrote, as a Catholic, I will not be able to practice in Germany. But, you know, the way I can practice my Catholicism here with my Spanish wife and my Spanish kids. So they'd layer sort of different rationales. And in many cases, 
those worked, where Germans would say, well, if someone is taken to their own defense, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't deport them. You know, that, that would be some discussion in the Spanish foreign ministry. So, so there's a number of reasons how people would not, you know, would get off the list. A, a final thing that happened is that many, many of these Germans would go back to Germany, would then be held. Most of them would be heard in front of a denazification panel within two or three months. And then the penalty most often in front of those panels was not prison. Only people who are higher up in the SD or the Gestapo might be held for longer than that. So that Walter Eugen Mosig was someone who was held for a number of months mm -hmm. before he escaped. And there was no indication he was about to be released. But someone who'd be a more typical agent would only be held two or three months in Germany, would then go through a denazification panel, maybe told, oh, you know, you were, looked like you were a serious Nazi, so you can't vote in elections for two years, but not go to prison. They'd go back to Spain, because they, if they hadn't lived in Germany for 10 or 15 years, you know, how are they going to get a job? Who, who did they know? They knew people in Spain. Right. They could get a job. Many of them saw the devastation of Germany after the war and said, life is better in Spain. Some of them were from areas under Soviet zone that was becoming communist that eventually becomes East Germany. They did not want to live oh, under yeah. communism. So better to go back to Spain. So the Allies were aware of this and could do nothing. The Spanish refused to say, oh, this person has legitimate reasons to come live in Spain. Mm -hmm. if, they've, if, if you've dealt with them in Germany, they've been through a hearing, and they're coming back, then we're not going to stop them. Right. And so many people came back to Spain even after this. So of those 265, it was impossible to determine how many came back, but I saw enough in the, in the archives to suggest a good number came mm -hmm. back and then had the rest of their lives or their careers in Spain. Yeah, I, th I thought it was interesting in your book how you um, emphasized that the Germans weren't passive as they faced the threat of deportation, the ones who were living in Spain, and so they actually reframed the notion of, of citizenship. Mm -hmm. um, to sort of say, they're not officially Spanish citizens, but to, to make that argument. Yeah, that they, they considered themselves, or at least the argument they were making is they should be considered as Spanish citizens, and you wouldn't deport your own citizens. Right. So therefore, I should not be deported. So do you think that this story of the Franco regime's pretty significant resistance to the Allied effort to repatriate these Germans, does this kind of change our understanding of the of the Franco regime uh, at all. I, I was kind of surprised the level to which they did not cooperate with mm -hmm. the Allies, given, as you said, that they had this shift near the end of the war um, towards framing themselves more as, as a neutral country and not cooperating with the Nazis. Sure. I, I mean, I think there is this sense, okay, Franco was pro-Nazi, would have liked to have joined the war, but didn't for various practical reasons. And then when he sees the war changing, he becomes pro-allied. There's some truth to that. But it's a very slow process. It is not done willingly. Mm -hmm. It is circumstances that are determining this move, not belief. Right. Therefore, this shows us, well, what circumstances, how far could you go with not changing? You, you know, the Allies made a number of uh, demands on Franco, not just this one, about repatriation. They also demanded that he rewrite the Constitution. You know, eventually that leads him to name his successor 
as a as a monarchy, yeah. not one of his family members, or you know, not a constant dictatorship. We'll go back to a monarchy. You know, that comes about through some Allied pressure to show that there is a way out of dictatorship, even though, of course, Franco intended the monarchy to be dictatorial. Right. And, and it wasn't. But at each of these demands, and that took years to get Franco to do that, at each stage, he is testing back. So the way I read that is there's not interest by Franco and by many people in the regime. It's not just him. They don't believe in democracy. They liked what they got out of their relationship to some extent from Nazi Germany. They've worked with these people who they also like personally and we're not willing to throw that away. So they're looking for what they can get away with. Right. You know, what's the minimum amount of change that will satisfy the Allies? Franco knows the Cold War is coming. In fact, in 1944 he has a meeting with the American ambassador where he lays out this theory that there's not a single world war, there's multiple world wars. And one of them's against Nazi Germany. Franco kind of almost admits we kind of had some sympathy with them. <laughs> right. One of them, though, he says the war that the United States doesn't realize in 1944 is communism versus the West. And Franco's full in on that war. Right. And he uses it to describe why he sent some troops to assist the Nazis in the Soviet Union. He says, well, because I'm full in on the war against communism. Uh -huh. And soon you will be too. And so Franco has this idea that, you know, he's anti-communist. And when the Cold War comes on, the United States will need anti-communist allies in all forms. And he will be there. Right. And that's, of course, what happens. And so if that's the case, then there's no need to conform 100% with what the Allies are asking. There's mm -hmm. wiggle room. And so the Franco regime is figuring out where that room is. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me the extent to which the Franco regime is, is, in the end, able to get closer to the Allies, particularly the U.S., while holding on to, they never really get, give up totally these connections with the fascism and, yeah. and with the yeah. Nazis. I would say one thing, I guess, to conclude, though, is they do get the message that these people can't be in the government. Right. Um, and so that instance of Walter Eugene Mosig being hired by Spanish intelligence, the Allies say this is unacceptable and he's let go. There's extensive recruitment in 1947 and into 1948 in Spain by Argentina for people who had military connections because Argentina was willing to employ former Nazis in the military. And they found a bunch I shouldn't say a bunch, a handful of people who had come up through the military, who'd been in military intelligence or, or aviation or something like that, and had no other skills, didn't want to be in business or didn't have links to business, couldn't be business people. And they wanted to stay in the military, and they realized they couldn't do that in Spain. That mm -hmm. was something the Allies made very clear. So there is a movement of Nazis from Spain to Argentina some of them escaping for, because some coming from Germany because they were war criminals and they wanted to get out and they go to Spain and then on to Argentina. But many of them already in Spain or with these intelligence ties who want to keep working in that field and, and the Spanish government makes it clear that that will not fly in Spain. And then Argentina comes along and says, we can allow you to do that. So the former Air Force attache at the Madrid Embassy, uh, Eberhard Eckhart, um, ends up becoming an instructor at the Argentine Military University in naval uh, or in, in aviation um, science. After spending almost two years after the war in Spain, but not having any kind of employment 
because he couldn't get a job with, he tried and couldn't get a job with the Spanish government. So in that sense, yes, these individuals stay there as individuals and are part of the community, but if one of the Allied goals was to prevent Nazism from coming into the Spanish government, the Spanish get that message. And, yeah. and so that part's achieved, even though the presence of these people is not eliminated. So I think that's what you mention in the, in the conclusion of your book too, right? That even though this repatriation program was largely a failure, kind of similarly to the denazification program as a whole, it, it did have some success insofar as limiting the role of the, of the Germans. So is there something you think it, it can tell us more about the denazification program as a whole? Sure, sure. And I think I would just add to that, it doesn't mean there weren't Germans who continued to be Nazis and neo-Nazis. There's neo-Nazi organizations that are formed in Spain in the 50s. Some of these people are founders of these groups and are very active in these groups. So it doesn't eliminate it, but it does eliminate it from the Spanish government. And I think if you look at denazification generally, we can look back from our perspective and say, denazification in Germany failed because many people who committed war crimes did not go on trial, did not serve prison terms. Many of them went on to have very successful lives, which is true, and that is a failing. But Germany became a democracy. Uh, West Germany became a democracy, and now all of Germany is a democracy, and that goal was achieved, and the Nazi party never came back. So if that was the goal of denazification, was not only, if we think only trials is the goal, then yes, it failed. But if we think broader democratization of Germany and democratic spirit, and democratic institutions and day-to-day -day life from municipal all the way to federal government, then it, then it worked. And I think you could say, well, Nazism did not flourish in Franco Spain. There was still fascism, there was still the Falange and Spanish fascists, and German fascists as their friends, and German Nazis as their friends, but they did not definitively influence the Franco regime. And maybe, even though the dictatorship goes to 1975, maybe that's significant when we look at the, how quickly then Spain moved into transition you know, to a democracy. Well, Dave, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on the program. It's been a really fascinating conversation. And um, I know you have lots more details in your book, which I understand is coming out in Spanish in yes. the near future. So you can have uh, Hunting Nazis in Franco Spain in the uh, English version, or uh, it'll be coming out in Spanish with Alliance uh, Editorial in October 2018. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook so that you can be notified of new episodes.